Jesus uh, told his disciples that he was the light of the world. In fact, he put it this way, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. At an earlier time, he says to to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus has not saved us merely to take us to heaven. Otherwise, he could have taken us to heaven right when he saved us. But Jesus saved us so that he could spend our lives conforming us into into his own image and using us to make a difference in this world. You don't make a difference in the world just by living in a casual, happenstance kind of way. You make a difference in the world by living with intentionality, uh, by living with a sense of calling. It doesn't matter if you're an apostle like Paul or a housewife like Timothy's mother. God has called all of us who know Him through Christ Jesus to make a difference. In fact, that's what I want to talk with you about this morning, living to make a difference. And we're studying through the book of 1 Thessalonians. In fact, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to look at Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 34. But first, I want you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I want you to notice in these opening two verses that if you're going to make a kingdom difference you've got to refuse to give up in the face of godless opposition. You'll see what I mean as I read these two verses. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition." So before Paul and Silas and Timothy made it to Thessalonica, uh, they started a church in Philippi. And they were persecuted in Philippi. We're going to read about it in just a moment. And when they went to Thessalonica, you would have thought if they were cowards, if they were, had a weak disposition, uh, they wouldn't have gone back to the very same message and done the very same thing that they did in Philippi because they knew if they preached the same message in Thessalonica that they preached in Philippi, they were going to experience the same kind of opposition. But you'll notice that it says that they were bold in God. Their boldness wasn't just a natural disposition. It it wasn't just a, a, a temperament that they had. Their boldness came to them from God. And the message they preached was the gospel of God. And they didn't preach it to friends, they preached it among their opponents, among their enemy. They said, we speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. And so everywhere Paul went, Paul lived in order to make a difference. Paul lived his life to be a light in a dark world. And he wants the same for us. Christ wants the same for us. He wants us to be change agents. He wants us to be the kind of people that make a difference. Wherever we live, whatever we do, whether we're in high school or in a convalescent center, Jesus Christ wants to shine through us to make a difference. But we don't just drift into that. It's easy to drift out of that kind of thinking, but it takes intentionality, and it takes fortitude, and it takes a resiliency of spirit to get up every day 
and to say to yourself, by the grace of God, for the glory of God, I want to make a difference for Christ in my little space in this world, whatever it may be. Now, you'll notice that he mentions Philippi here in verse 2, having already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. The most magnificent thing about this is we can go to Acts chapter 16, which I'm going to ask you to do now, and we can see exactly the kind of suffering that Paul went through in Philippi. We can see exactly the kind of opposition that he experienced in Philippi, how he responded to it, and how God, through Paul and Silas in particular, made an eternal difference in the life of one family. So I want us to see a real-life example of godly resilience. In Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 21, here's the setting. Paul's preaching the gospel in Philippi. He cast a demon out of a slave girl who had a spirit that appeared to enable, excuse me, enable her to foretell the future. She was enslaved to a group of men who used her as their means of an occupation, their means of making money. When Paul cast the demon out of that slave girl, these men lost their opportunity of making money. So in verse 19 it says, but when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, so notice their response, what they're about to do is really motivated by greed. They, they serve Paul and Silas and drag them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion. So these men, this missionary team in this very large city known as Philippi, are making a significant impact. Now, maybe they're speaking a little bit hyperbolically when he says throwing the entire city into, con- into confusion, or maybe they're speaking in reality. These men were really causing a stir. But notice that they use racism. They use racism as the means by which to have Paul and Silas arrested. So he says, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. They're Jews, we're Romans. They're causing confusion, and we shouldn't, and we shouldn't put up with it any longer. And so there's an uproar, and they're using racism. That is, the Gentile world in the first century was very racist against Jewish people. And many Jewish people were racist against Gentile people. There was a chasm, a massive chasm between Jew and Gentile in the ancient world. And these men here, they've been deprived of their means of income. And so they begin to acknowledge the fact they're Jews, we're Romans, we shouldn't put up with it. And so you'll notice that this this, um, greed drove them to racist comments. Uh, It's astounding to me that people say that the Bible isn't very contemporary, the Bible isn't very applicable, the Bible isn't very relevant. Well, it's usually people who don't ever read the Bible that say that, the people that don't know the Bible, the people that don't study the Bible. The Bible is very relevant. The Bible is very contemporary. The Bible addresses 
issues from a first century perspective that are very current in our 21st century setting, particularly in our nation today. You see, what racism does, it refuses to acknowledge that every person is created in the image of God, whether they're in the womb of their mother or they're in a convalescent center with dementia, they've been created in the image of God. And because of that, whether it's the womb or the convalescent center, they are a valuable, they are a valuable to God. Racism says that some people are less valuable to God because of their upbringing, their background, the, the color of their skin, whatever it might be. But the Bible says every person is created in God's image. And because of that, all life is valuable, every person's life. Racism refuses to acknowledge what Paul said in Acts 17, 26, and God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. We all come from the same parents. We all have the same heritage. We all come from Adam and Eve. That's what Paul is saying in Acts chapter 17. Racism is a rejection of the Bible's clear teaching that God so loved the world. Now, God has a peculiar love, a particular love, a specific love for His own children. But the Bible says clearly, unambiguously, for God so loved the world. He loves every single person in the world. We should love people. The only ultimate solution for racism is a gospel solution. Legislation is important, and legislation should be a high agenda item. But at the end of the day, only the change of a person's heart can cure them of racism. You can legislate morality, but it doesn't change the heart of a racist. We must be a gospel people. All of the ills of our society that are the result of our sin can only ultimately and definitively and finally be changed by regenerate hearts. And so we see right here in the book of Acts a satanic attempt to silence the gospel. Uh, But I want you to notice with me a gospel response to unjust suffering. There's a lot of ways to respond to injustice, and Paul and Paul and Silas have been unjustly arrested. They've been unjustly beaten. They've been thrown into the inner prison. And notice what they, what they do. After being beaten and shackled and thrown in the, among the dregs of society, they, verse 25 says that about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. See, if you're going to be a difference maker, you're going to face satanic opposition. You know that and I know that. And that level of opposition will vary from person to person. Some people face much more than other people do. But notice that Paul and Silas, they teach us the most the most helpful of lessons, prayer and singing. See, when, when I encounter opposition, I, I usually pull the covers up over my head. I look in the mirror and say, why me? Woe is me. Why would, why would people not like me? And Paul and Silas, 
would have been suffering physically, having been beaten. They would have been suffering emotionally, having been isolated from the rest of their team. And yet we find them praying and singing. That doesn't come by just naturally. Only the Spirit of God working in the manner of the woman of God can cause the person of God to begin to look to heaven when things are not going their way and to begin to worship God that He is seated on heaven's throne because no matter how difficult, no matter how arduous, no matter how strong the opposition to us may be, God is on His throne. God has given us His Holy Spirit. God uses the ills that are inflicted upon us to conform us into the image of His beloved Son. And to that we can say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so we see a gospel response to unjust suffering. And the most amazing thing happens, you're probably familiar with the story, there's an earthquake, and the shackles of all the prisoners are broken loose. And the soldier, the, the guard, the person that's responsible for all of these prisoners, think because the shackles have fallen off, the doors have been, uh, have been knocked open by the earthquake. They've all left, so he's on the verge of committing suicide. He's getting ready to take his life. And so, Paul stops him and he says, don't do that. Don't kill yourself. We're all still here. And look with me in verse 30. And after he brought them out, he said, sir... Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's the most important question in all the world. What must I do to be saved? The answer that Paul and Silas give are going to be monumentally important. So important that heaven and hell hangs in the balance. To answer this question wrong brings eternal consequences. What must I do to be saved? Well, that brings us to the third thought in this section, an unexpected conversion to the glory of God. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, spruce up your life. He doesn't say, quit doing this and quit doing that. He doesn't say, try to be a better person and then come and try and find salvation in God. He'll, he'll receive you when you're the kind of person that's acceptable to Him. No, what Paul says in verse 31 is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus. That is, believe He is who the Bible says that He is. He's the only begotten Son of God who bore our sin in His body on the tree suffer the wrath of God in our place. His corpse was placed in a borrowed tomb. He was raised from the dead to the glory of God on the third day, and He is now seated at God's right hand. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, He says. And then He has you and your household. Well, this adds an interesting dimension to it. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all those, with all who were in his home, that is his family. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized in all his household, and he brought them into his house and 
set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Little did that father know that when he got up that morning and he went down to the local jail to participate in the beating of two of God's choice servants, shackle them and throw them into the inner prison, that that would be the day of salvation for him and that would be the day of salvation for his family. What an unbelievable story this is. What I want you to notice is that this father came to saving faith in Christ, and the ramification for his family was significant. Do you know there are all kinds of studies that that demonstrate the importance of parents in the family as it relates to religion? For example, if the first person in the family converted is a child, there's only a 3.5% probability that the rest of the family will be saved. Now, that's better than nothing, and praise God for the salvation of that child. But if a child is the first one saved in a family of unregenerate, non-Christian people, there's only a 3.5% probability that the rest of that family will be saved and follow Christ. If the mother is the first one saved, If the mother is the first one saved, there's a 17% probability that the rest of the family will come to saving faith. But if a father is the first one saved, the studies show that there's a 93% probability that the rest of the family will come to saving faith. On Father's Day, we see a father who was unregenerate, hard-hearted, used to watching people suffer tremendous punishment. He comes to saving faith, and his family follows. You may be a single mom or a single dad here today. You may be thinking, man, these statistics are kind of discouraging to me. Remember just a couple of weeks ago, that's why I love preaching through books of the Bible, we talked about Timothy. Timothy had an unregenerate father. I don't know what happened to him after Timothy was saved, but before Timothy was saved, he was going to hell. Timothy's mother was going to heaven. Timothy's mother and Timothy's grandmother were Jewish Christians saved on Paul's first missionary journey. They led Timothy to faith in Christ. Well, the 17% probability doesn't seem very high. God can do unbelievable and magnificent things through a single mom or a single dad who loves Jesus. The point I'm making here is that when the father leads the way and is is a real man, the kind of man that leads his family, then that family has a much higher probability from a human perspective of coming to faith in Christ. Another study that I read this last week has to do with Sunday school. Of course, we don't have Sunday school. We've got Bible fellowship groups here. But uh, Sunday school, Bible fellowship groups, adult Bible fellowship groups, whatever, whatever the name of it is, There's some very interesting statistics. When only the mother attends 
Bible study, either right before worship or right after worship, traditional Sunday school or what we call our Bible fellowship groups. When her, when her children grow up, only 15% of them will go to Bible study as adults. Praise be to God for the mothers who will come to Bible study even without their husbands. When it's the father, with the father who comes to Bible study without the mother, there's a 55% chance that the children probably, from a human perspective, the probability is that they will go to Bible study and be involved in the church. That's where you get most involved in a local church is in those small groups. When it's the mom and the dad, who attend Bible fellowship group together, 72% of those children raised in those homes, 72% probability that those children will attend Bible study when they become adults. So the, the seeds that we plant now are monumentally important for the fruit it bears in our children's lives. Now, you, be, you may be thinking this morning, Bill, I didn't do that. I regret it. My heart is broken. My children don't love Jesus. Not only do my children not go to Bible study, my children don't, don't attend church. The good news is God hears the prayers of His people. God hears your prayers. He he sees your tears. A child can run a long way from God and be on the very precipice of hell itself, and the prayers of godly parents can reach them, no matter how far, no matter how, how far they've run, no matter how deep into sin they've sunk. Your prayers can make a difference. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. And ask other people to pray with you. Get a small army of people who love you and care for you in your Bible fellowship group to pray with you for those, for those adult children, those college-age children. Because God answers prayer. And we can do nothing about the past but we can do something about the present. We could be a change agent. And maybe the best place to start is with our families. I'm going to ask if you'll stand and allow me to lead us in a word of prayer, and and then we're going to sing together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is timely and relevant, applicable, and, and really so helpful. Thank you for giving it to us. And Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would take these, uh, these words that we've read and, and we've spoken about this morning and plant them deeply in our hearts. And Father, if there are those here today who have children running from God, encourage them today with the fact that no one can outrun a prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.